Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us, show us what you would want us to see from this chapter, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 19, uh, we're looking at the life of Josephus, 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 Jehoshaphat. <laughs> Jehoshaphat is the king of, is, of Judah. He married one of Ahab's relatives, so that put him in, in league with the northern kingdom with one of the most evil kings of their, of their, of their time. And if you remember, he went up to see Ahab. Ahab talked him into going into battle. They, they got the prophet to prophesy to him and said, Ahab, you're going to die in battle. And uh, Jehoshaphat went into battle with him anyway. Uh, almost died because the enemy had told him to go, go after only the king of, king of Israel. And he very foolishly agreed, agreed with Ahab that he would dress in his royal robes and Ahab would disguise himself. I still have, that would bog, is boggling the mind why you would even think of doing something like that. Yeah, you know, Ahab, you're going to die, but you know, Jehoshaphat, you go in and looking like the king. It didn't make a whole lot of sense, but that is what he did. And uh, now we're going to be in chapter 19. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace in, to Jerusalem, and Jehu, the son of Hananiah the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is the wrath of the Lord come upon you. Nevertheless, there are good things found in you, in that you have taken away the groves out of the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So I want to stop there for just a moment because I think this is very interesting what the prophet has said. Jehoshaphat goes back to Judah in peace. He's been, at least he survived the battle, <laughs> and now he's going to go back into his land, which is at peace, and he's met by a seer who asks him a very interesting question. Should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? And I think this is something that all of us really do need to be considering. How many times do we hate the things that, that, uh, that God says to love and love the things that God says to hate. And here's Jehoshaphat going and aligning himself. He is a righteous king. He's gotten rid of the asteroids and all the different idols, and he goes and spends time with Ahab, who between Ahab and Jezebel are worshipers of Baal and Astoroth. And those are the very things he's getting rid of in his own country, and yet he goes and has fellowship with his in-law and draws and, and works with him, goes to battle with him, is supporting him. And if you remember, he told Ahab, you know, you, your people and my people are one, and he's drawing close together with him. And I think this is, especially in our day and age, we're finding the church and Christianity doing just this with the world. Well, you know, it's not too bad. You know, we don't want to be too different from the world. Even though God says it's evil and sinful, we're not going to attack it. We're not going to call it sin. We're not going to deal with it. And this is what the prophet said to him. Why do you love that which the Lord hates? Or as it said here, uh, help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord. 
And too often we tend to do just that and not bring God's standards into situations. And this is something that's very critical for us as Christians. Are we going to take a godly stand and say, this is what God says? And too often we kick back from it because we're afraid of what the world's going to say. We're afraid of the attack of the world saying, no, no, that's not the way it is. You can't, you can't judge me. And that will go for any of the sins out there. Now, our big ones right now are homosexuality and transgenderism. But before that, it was fornication and living together. And before that, you know, uh, all the different things that have happened over the years. And every time we accept one level, the next level is worse. And the next level will be worse. And you're going, well, what's worse than transgenderism? We don't even want to think about all the perversions that are out there that are worse than even transgenderism. All right, uh, but they're coming. Those are what brought the judgment upon Canaan. They're what brought the judgment on all these nations over the years is you know, how quickly they fall and don't call sin, sin. And there are lots of churches that won't call a sin, a sin. You know, they won't say that Jesus' blood was to cover the sins of, our, of people. Uh, they, and they won't say that anything's a sin because they were afraid of what the repercussions of saying that kind of stuff is going to be. Now, that doesn't mean we get in everybody's face and attack everybody out there, but we also cannot passively just sit back and say, you know, it's okay. Because our passivity tells people it's okay, and then they continue going to deeper and deeper into sin. And this is the thing that we always have to understand. Sin does not just stand still. It always takes people deeper and further than they want to go. And here is uh, the prophet telling Jehoshaphat, what do you think you're doing? You know, you're, cleaning out, you're cleaning out your country, and then you go to a country that is known for its idolatry and worship, and you treat them as family and friends. And I think the prophet is probably a little bit confused. And probably God's confused. <laughs> if God could be confused. Jehoshaphat, you're, you're getting rid of all the idols and then you go up there and you part, you know, you're hanging out with people that are worshiping idols and not really bringing in any, any statement that it's wrong. And this is a huge issue. And I just want to bring that out because I think that's such an important point for us is how do we react? What do we look at when we're being fed all the stuff that God that brings hatred toward God, the whole world system. You know, all of our magazines, newspapers, television shows, movies, songs, everything are to elevate sin and speak against God for the most part. And how do we react? What do we spend our time feeding ourselves with? And that's basically what he's saying to Jehoshaphat. You've been up there feeding yourself on idolatry and, and all these things, and now you're back here. What were you thinking? I think that's really what he's saying to him. What were you thinking, Jehoshaphat? You know, and Jehoshaphat's only defense was the same defense we usually give. I wasn't. I wasn't thinking at all about anything that I was doing. Wasn't thinking about the consequences of it. And this is a critical point. Is Are we thinking about the consequences of what is going to happen in the future when we don't say anything, when, especially if we're challenged? And it's in our face and somebody's saying, well, what do you think about this? 
Now, people are learning not to ask me what I think about things, you know, especially at the work. If they don't ask me, I won't tell them, because my job out there is to be a teacher of computers or to be the, the senior instructor. But as soon as they ask me about something, they're going to hear what I have to say. And one day I'll get myself in trouble for what I have to say, but it is what it is. You know, if, the, if I'm asked, I cannot be silent. And this is the problem. What do we do? How do we react? Do we put ourselves in positions that make it look like we're approving? Because this is what Jehoshaphat did. He went up there and it made it look like he was approving idolatry. Even though he didn't, part I'm sure he didn't participate. He didn't do any of this stuff. He even asked for a, a, a prophet of the God to come and prophesy to them and then didn't really pay attention to him. So he made it look like, especially to his people, that he was making an approval of idol worship, even, in a, even though he was getting rid of it in his own country. So there's a mixed message going out to his people. And we need to be very careful about this. I've been asked, well, what would you do if your kids got into some certain sin? I'd go, I'd love them and tell them that they're wrong and not allow them to practice it in my house. Like, well, they might leave. I'm going, that would be their decision. It's not my decision. My decision is to uphold God's rules in my house. And if they don't like it, that's not my problem. Uh, you know, would I totally reject them? No. If one of them came home and, you know, with, uh, with a person that they were living with, they would not be sleeping together in my house. I'm not going to reject them and their, and their partner at that time, but I'm not, they're not going to sleep together. They're not going to have overt uh, relationships that I would not approve normally anyway because I will uphold God's standards. And you know, we have to make those decisions. What are we going to do when we are faced with the world's way of doing things? And this is a critical question that all people have to do. The founder of Chick-fil-A, he made a decision early on in his career that he was not going to be open on Sunday on his stores. And to this day, his stores are not open on Sundays. And God honors Truett Cathy's uh, practice by giving his stores greater sales in six days in, uh, per, per square foot of space than anybody else gets because he stood for God. And people are struggling with how can that store make so much money in six days? Uh, but it's because they started on God's foundations. And he made a stand. I'm not doing things the way the world does. I'm going to do it the way God wants it. And when we follow his way, God will bless that, that stand for us. And Jehoshaphat is not making a stand. And he's challenged. He gets home in the the man gets in his face and he says, and in the last part of verse 2, it says, Therefore the wrath upon you, therefore is wrath upon you from before the Lord. There's going to be consequences. And we've said this over and over again. There's always consequences for our disobedience. Okay. Always consequences for disobedience. Now, he's also going to say, Nevertheless, <laughs> there's been good found in you. So, Jehoshaphat, you're going to have consequences. The consequences really should have been you know, that he would lose his kingdom and lose it. But he says, because you have done some good things, in that you have taken away the groves or the astaroths, uh, 
literally the worship of Astora, uh, you know, out of the land and have prepared your heart to seek the Lord. And I love this word for seek, to seek with care, to frequent, to inquire. He says, Jehoshaphat, you are wanting to find God and God recognizes that. You've done foolishly, you've done, you've done, haven't done something that's good, but there is good found in you. And all of this is going to help negate the full consequences that would have come his way. And this is the good news for us. If we repent, if we turn away from our sin that we're doing, there's still consequence, but God will blunt the consequence oftentimes for us and say, this is what you're due, but this by my mercy is what you're going to get. And, our, and his mercy is partially due to how do we respond? Do we repent or do we fight hard against it and end up having to face the full force of what he is doing to us? And Jehoshaphat is told, you're going to have the wrath of God, but because of some of the good things you're doing, God is going to give you some mercy. And this is good news. And it's a good lesson for us that even when we disobey, repentance will draw back. Now, we will still face consequences usually. It is possible that God may say, okay, you've repented, there is no consequence. That doesn't happen very often. Don't count on that. <laughs> and we look at this, and then we go in verse 4. And Jehoshaphat dwelt in, at Jerusalem, and he went out again into the people from Beersheba to, to Mount Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God their, of their fathers. And he set judges in the land throughout the, all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Take heed what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in judgment. Therefore, wherefore thou let us fear the Lord, let the fear of the Lord be upon you, Take heed to do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord your God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. All right, so Jehoshaphat makes a tour of his nation. Now, we don't know these cities so much as, as we would, but he says he went from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim. For us, that would be some, saying something along the lines of he went from Houston to, to Chicago. From the, from the southernmost place to the northernmost place. Beersheba in the south and Mount Ephraim in the north. I can think of other cities, but if I said the other cities, nobody would really recognize them. You know, uh, I don't know what the furthest south city is. You know, oh, Key West. Went from Key West to a uh, little town in Maine, you know, <laughs> north of Bangor. You know, uh, really long distance. He went from from the north to the south. That's what he's saying here, from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim. He's, he's going throughout his whole nation, and it says he brought them back to the Lord. He got them to repent. Now, um, now, how honest this repentance is when the king is telling you to repent, I don't know. Uh, God seems to be honoring it, uh, but he's bringing them back, and he's saying this is who God is, and he's reminding them about God and helping them remember. And for many of us, this is what we need to be doing is helping people remember God. And it's getting harder and harder in our generation because there are more and more people out there that know nothing about the Bible. 
That's really hard for me to figure out because I know the Bible so well. But you know, when I went to college the second time and I took a English uh, 1A class and we were trying to interpret some, some books and I was listening to a Bible reference and I can't remember what the Bible reference was and nobody in the class knew what that Bible reference was. And they were coming up with the stupidest ideas of what that reference meant because they did not know the story that was being referenced. And the sad thing was, the young instructor didn't know what the reference meant. And I got up and I'm going, I looked at them and raised my hand and I'm going, you all have put up some really crazy ideas of what this reference would, is all about, but would you like me to tell you the story that this reference actually talks about? And they go, what is it talking about? This comes from the Bible. This is a Bible reference. And I can tell you the story so that you'll now understand what the story that he was bringing out was all about. So I got a chance to give the Bible story in a class. And I'm going, oh, well, that makes more sense now. <laughs> well, of course, if you know what the reference is, it makes sense. But the biblical illiteracy of America is extremely sad. And even in the older generation, it's kind of sad because most of them don't even know the real stories about the Bible. And we've all heard it where people say, well, doesn't this story say something about this? And I go, what in the world? Where did you get that story from? You know, uh, I was even listening on the radio this morning and they misquoted a story and added a huge phrase in the, to make a point that they were trying to make. And I'm going, I gotta go check this. And I went back and checked the scriptures and nowhere did it make the statement that the words that they added to the, to the story. And I'm going, okay, you know, we've got to be careful. You know, and it's happening even in some of our good Bible teachers add a bunch of stuff to their to these things to make their point. And it's like you read it in the scripture and going, what in the world are you doing? We're not to add our thoughts into what was being what is, said. What is so cool is that he's about this and he's like, this time I'm reading this to women. I'm really now remembering some of the stories. I didn't forget it, but when I start, I remember that and I remember how it ends and everything. ton of stories in there that are wonderful stories to learn, to, total messages that are out there. And so many people don't know them, don't know the stories that are involved. Well, not to doubt, they really put it in detail. At first, the first two times I read it, it was like, but now I'm really learning, and it really is interesting. Mm -hmm. And we get to know these, and we need to share these stories with other people in simple, simple ways. You know, when there's sin going on, we need to be able to just gently tell them that God does not approve. And it could be that simple. God does not approve of what you're doing. And not, not that I don't or they don't, but God does not approve of this activity. But even, like, it's not like this. But even now, I even kind of like the genealogy, and I never did like the people. I kind of even like them. I know that means. But at first, I didn't like it. Yeah. I understand. For years I didn't like the genealogies and then all of a sudden I started going, hold it, there's a lot of good information in these genealogies. Yep. So he goes in there and he's basically preaching the gospel message, you know, or the Jewish message at that time, but the gospel message that God cares for them and, and has protection from them and he's doing it from the south to the north 
And it says here that he went out and did this, which is kind of surprising that the king is going out to really teach. Now, I'm sure he had lots of help. But, and then it says he sets up judges. All right? And that means that he appointed them uh, to rule in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. So he's setting up a judicial system, saying, because before that, most of the cases would have to go to the king. And the king would sit at the royal court, and he's going, well, I'm getting over, basically saying this is a practical thing, I'm getting overwhelmed in the judgment seat, and all I ever do is judge, judge cases, so I'm going to put judges all around the country, and then I will be the Supreme Court if there's a big, big case. Basically the same thing that Moses was told, put you know, by his father-in-law. Uh, okay, it's not fair that you're sitting all day long and people are having to stand out in the sun all day long to, for you to make a judgment. Find godly men that can be judges. And then you just take the big cases. They handle all the little stuff and you get the big cases. This is what Jehoshaphat's doing. Okay, judges, you take care of these little things. But he gives them certain instructions. And one of it says, Take heed what you do, for you judge not for man, but for God who is with you in your judgment. So in other words, he's saying, you're not to be men pleasers, you're to please God. And this is so important for us. When we do anything, are we realizing that we are serving God? Or are we trying to make people happy? And if we're trying to make people happy, we're going to have a sad time because that's going to mean that somebody's going to not be happy. And one of the things I've learned over the years is there's always somebody who's going to be upset with you. If you make a decision, somebody's going to be upset with you. So the question is, am I going to stand with God and do things God's way and at least have God on my side no matter what, even if everybody else was mad at me, knowing that I did what was right? Or am I going to try to please people? And the more we try to please people, the worse off we're going to get because our decisions won't be for God. And Jehoshaphat's rule is remember who you're actually ruling for. You're not making rules for the people. You're taking God's rules and applying his rules. And so basically what he's saying is get your Bibles out, gentlemen, and make proper judgments. Look at what the law of God says. And he's already doing this. He's taking out the idols. He's getting rid of it. And he's been calling people to come back to God. So he's setting the example of being a godly man and following after God. And he says, make sure you understand who you're judging. And goes, wherefore now, in verse 7, wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed to do it. The fear of the Lord, literally the reverence, the awe of God. And usually when we read about the fear of God, it's not telling us to be terrified and scared to death of him. It is to put him in his proper position with awe and reverence. I think the best idea to this is figure out who, you're, who the most famous person you can think of to ever meet and then think about how you would feel if you met them. You know, now, some people wouldn't care. Well, I don't care about any of these people, but you know, there are certain people that we probably would be in a little bit of awe to meet. Uh, now, for me, I wouldn't care if President Biden stood in my case because I'd probably get after him because he's so ungodly with his decisions. But you know, maybe with President Trump had come into my presence, you know, I might have had this. Oh, wow! You know, this is somebody that's 
that I would really like to meet. And I don't really have anybody that I can think of that I would really, really like to meet. Uh, but you know, you're understanding what I'm saying. There are some people that would say, I just really want to meet this person. And if they met them, a lot of times you, you when somebody meets somebody that they're in awe of, they can't speak, they can't think of a thing to say when they first meet them. It's like, they're tongue-tied. I'm actually in the presence of this person. This is what's usually talked about when it's being in awe of God. If I could actually stand in the presence of God, I don't know that I'd be able to say anything. Number one, scripturally, I know I wouldn't be able to because I'd be overawed by his, by his presence. But even if I could stand in there in his presence, I don't know that I would have anything to say to God, especially at first. And I almost picture when we first get to heaven, I can picture myself just being mesmerized by Jesus and what he went through for us and just saying, wow, I actually get to see the one that did all of this for me and who's the reason I'm here. And outside of, you know, from this side of the, this side of heaven, I'm going, I don't think I could even speak. I'd be overawed just by being in his presence, the one that loved me so much to die so that I would not have to go to hell. And I can't imagine what it would be like to actually be in his presence. And we talk to him all the time in prayer, but it's going to be a different thing to actually be standing in front of him. At least I think so. And then to stand in front of the Father and be able to be in front of him and just be in awe. You know, this is the one that loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die for my sins. He's the one that created the world and planned it all and had this great plan of salvation in place before the foundation of the world and know that that's who I'm standing in front of in awe. And he says, remember the fear of the Lord and take heed to do. You know, uh, take heed to do it. And heed means to guard. And yes, we want to understand, we're not to be impressed and you know, really great with these people, but also understand there are these things that we're to be in awe of God. And, I, and the only thing I can use as an example is there's, most of us have somebody we would go, I'm in this person's presence, I would be amazed. You know, might have been like a Billy Graham. I'm standing in front of Billy Graham. You know, it's like, what do I say to say to Billy Graham? I know he's not alive anymore, but you know, you know, or some other teacher that you just can't imagine being able to talk to for us as Christians, and saying, "Wow, I'm in front of this person." You know, this person I never thought I'd ever get to get to be able to meet. This is the kind of thing we've got talking about: the awe of God, the 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 you know that I'm just amazed. <laughs> that I'm here, and he's saying, remember these things. And then he says, just as a reminder, there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of person, nor taking of gifts. So he's really going down the list. He goes, God has no evil in him. So what's he challenging them? Be men of no evil. Now that's an impossibility for us as people, but you know, our goal should be to be people where iniquity does not reside. So when people look at us, what do they see? They see God. Not somebody that is taken advantage of, not somebody that is making bad decisions. Because many of our justices in, in today's world are not in, in America are not making godly decisions. Most of them are not even making legal <laughs> decisions. They're just making their own opinion to please people. 
and trying to justify it. And this is a sad place because iniquity is found in their decisions. And it's really sad. It's really hard to look at some of the decisions that come down. And then when they do make godly decisions, they're criticized for them. And then it says there's no respect of persons, no prejudice. I'm not going to pick one person over another. In other words, I'm going to look at just the case. I don't care if it's a rich person against a poor person. I'm not going to pick one or the other just because of their status. And many times it would go to the rich person. But there are certain judges that say, well, I'm always going to judge for the poor person because the rich people are taking advantage of them and not even consider the real case. And he's saying, I want no, there should be no partiality, no picking one over the other for any reason other than the actual case brought before them. And then he says the last one, no taking of gifts, which are literally bribes. No taking of bribes. Now, our justices are supposed to not be taking bribes, though I doubt highly that there's any of them that don't take bribes out there. Our governing officials are not supposed to take bribes, but I'm sure most of them do. But the idea of not taking a bribe is so important because if you take that bribe, then even if you make the right decision, everybody looks at you and says, well, that was bought. That rich person bought your, bought your vote, bought your, bought, your, bought your condition, and this is very, very important for us. Are we going to stand for God? Now, we're not judges necessarily, but when we stand before God, are we going to have a defense that says, you honored God? And this is very important. I want to finish well. I want to have rewards when I get to heaven. And I want to say, God, I did the best I could for you. Now, I know that I have got many problems in my life, many sins in, in, in my life. But by the same token, I want to stand for God as often and as best as possible and finish the race well. Because I've seen too many people that don't finish well and end up looking like the world. And then people, and I've heard it over and over, well, if that person's a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. And I almost want to say, you know what, I agree with you. If that is what Christianity is about, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with Christianity either, but that's not what Christianity is about. And I get to tell them what Christianity is about. That is God's grace and his mercy, not the way that we live. You know, and it's really sad to me is that we as Christians have too light a view of God's laws and rules as much as possible uh, more, uh, too many times. Because you know, we understand grace, we understand his mercy, and we know that we're, we'll be forgiven if we do sin, and sometimes we take it too far. Now the world, on the other hand, has too high a standard for us. They expect us to be perfect. And we cannot be perfect. But they do, you know. But I think it's really important that we as Christians generally need to get a higher standard of our life before God and hopefully the world will come down but that's never going to happen <laughs> but if we had a higher standard of, how, of our expectation of obedience the world wouldn't have as much accusation against us because if I recognize that I have sinned and I've got a problem and I go to God and I repent then I know that I have a higher standard to live by but if I'm excusing my, my sin I'm being a very bad example of what a Christian is. 
Now, I understand, yes, grace and mercy and all that stuff, but there's always consequence for sin. And we need to understand that we need to have that high standard. Not that we're ever going to obtain it and reach it, but we have to have the standard that says, I am going to live for God to the best that I can with the Holy Spirit's help. And here he's telling them, he's given them charge. You are not representing man. You're, and you know, he says, you're not even representing me as king. You are representing God on these judgment seats. He's setting them up on a high standard. And he's really explaining to them, you know, to follow the right standard. Verse 8. Moreover, in Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat set the Levites and the priests and the chiefs of the fathers of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies when they returned to Jerusalem. And he charged them, saying, Thus shall you do in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with, with a perfect heart. And what cause soever come, shall come before your brethren that dwell in their cities, between blood and blood, between law and commandment, between statutes and judgments, you shall even warn them that they trespass not against the Lord, and so wrath comes come upon you but, uh, and upon your brethren. This do, and you shall not trespass. And behold, Amariah the chief priest is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Deal courageously, and the Lord shall be with the good. So now he's taking to the next step of, of rulers. He gets back to Jerusalem and he takes the Levites and the priests and the heads of the tribes and he sets them up for judgment of the Lord and for controversies or disputes or quarrels when they return to Jerusalem. So he takes the Levites. He's got judges in all the big, all the fence cities, all the defense cities. Now he gets back to Jerusalem and says, okay, now you guys are going to be the next court. They're going to be the court of appeal, in other words. Anything that doesn't get settled at this level will come to you. And then he's going to be the Supreme Court on top of that. If they can't come up with it, then they will go to him. But he says, you will be in charge of judgments and for controversies, which is disputes and quarrels. And he says, and he charged them. Ye shall, thus shall you do in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a perfect heart. You are going to judge, and you're to do it again in the fear of the Lord, the awe of the Lord. And he's really charging. These guys should have been there anyway. They're the priests and the Levites. They're supposed to be fearing God anyway. But now he's charging them. Remember, he's putting together a kingdom that has been deep into idol, idolatry and, and non-worshiping God, and he's saying, remember who God is. He's taking the Pentateuch and he's reading the scriptures to them and the laws and saying, here are the laws we're going to follow. It would make such a great thing if America would repent and get our laws in line with God's rules again. It's been a long time since our country has followed God's rules instead of doing what man thinks is best. And what man thinks is best is always against God when they follow the mob. And I've said this before, and it's a sad thing for America because we're ruled by the majority. Whatever the majority wants, they get. The sad thing is the majority throughout history and in the Bible 
the majority is almost always wrong because they follow that the majority will follow after the word the world system and not after God and it takes godly people to stand up courageously and say no we're not going this way and right now we don't have a whole lot of courageous leaders saying no we're not going to go this way we're going to follow God and it's really hard and I understand that it's hard but it is something that we need to be able to stand up and say this is what's going to be done we are going to follow God and we as Christians need to stand up and say it is wrong now our voices are being drowned out constantly anymore and our we're moving faster and faster to the destruction of our, our world because we're moving further away from God's word. But I also understand that if it wasn't for the church and Christians that are standing up, how far down the road would we be? We're, we're probably fighting a losing battle without God making a great revival. And I don't know if he's going to make a great revival at this point, but you know, I'd love to have one. Our job is to preach the word, set a standard, and let the Holy Spirit work on hearts. Because our job is not to convince somebody to get saved. We like to think it is sometimes, but our job is just to be, this is what God says, this is what God does. This is God's word. And then let the Holy Spirit work on people's hearts. Because we can't ever convince somebody to get saved. All we can do is present the case for salvation and then let them get worked on by the Holy Spirit. And this happens more and often than not, but you just say something that just, you know, you never know what you might say that will prick somebody's heart. And sometimes it's the silliest things. I've had people say, well, this was said to me, and I'm going, and that is what got you saved, that statement? <laughs> but that was what it took for the Spirit to get hold of them. And other people, you know, have heard the whole gospel message and still ignored it. And that is a sad thing, is when they reject the message of God over and over and over again. And yet God is standing there saying, here is the message. And I think I've mentioned this before. I'm really convinced that any, almost everybody in the last days before, there's, before they die, if they're not saved, has one last chance to hear the gospel message. One last chance so that when they die, they will have no excuse whatsoever. I can't prove that, I can't, but God is so just and so righteous that I picture him saying, all right, you're going to die in an hour, but I'm going to try one more time with somebody else to get hold of your attention. And not, they've been told they have one hour left, because if they did, they did repent. But God says, okay, you're in your last hour, here's one more time, one more opportunity to come to me. I really do believe this because of the justice and righteousness and, and integrity of God, that God gives that opportunity to them. So that I can't prove it. It's not necessarily biblical, but I do believe that because I've seen it happen over and over again where people are given the gospel right on their deathbed. And if we're saved, then we don't need it. We're just looking forward to death and deliverance. And he says, not only in the fear of the Lord, but faithfully with firmness, with the consistency. Are we living faithfully in our lives? Do we honestly do things the way God wants and to the best of our ability? Are we faithful and with a perfect heart, a complete and whole heart? 
This is something that is told to us all the time. Serve God with a complete or whole heart. God wants us to serve him willingly, happily. Now, uh, I think God will take grudgingly being obedient too, but there's not a whole lot of reward. Well, I'm being, my arm is twisted up behind my back and I'm, and I'm in a full Nelson, I guess I'll do what I'm told. That's not what God wants from us. He wants to say, God, I am just looking forward to doing something for you today. What can I do? How can I serve you today? And that really should be our prayer each morning. God, what do you have in store for me today? Now, I don't always make that prayer and then I get to the end of the day and going, God, what did I miss? There's other days when I'm so, you know, I'm going, God, I need you to show me what you have in store for me today. Where, where's the opportunity to serve you in a great way? And you know what? Every time I think that way, God shows me something that is going to be something that I get to do for him. That I get to touch somebody in some way that's special uh, and be able to lift them up. And you know, lately at work, I've been finding this opportunities to share with people that have just been opened up by them and be able to share and lift God up in very simple ways and very in, engaging ways and sometimes. And then it says in verse 10, And, whatsoever, and what cause soever that shall come up to, to you of your brethren that dwell in their cities, so this is telling us that they're the, the appeal court, these, these controversies have come from the cities to you. And he gives us very interesting, between blood and blood, family members. You know, between the family members that are out there, how many times do family members have trouble with each other? You know, and he's understanding that this could be that. Between law and commandment. And this is kind of an interesting statement, between law and commandment. God gives us rules, and how many times do we have problems with his rules? Sometimes on purpose, sometimes because we add to them, sometimes because we delete from them. Eve, when she was talking to the serpent, do you remember what she said when he said, you know, we can eat of any tree of the, of the garden except for the one in the midst of the garden. Of that one, we cannot eat it, nor can we touch it, lest we die. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that statement. Okay, God never said they couldn't touch it. And she said, we can't touch it. And he didn't say, you might die. He said, you would die. So her whole understanding of that law, whether she came up with it wrong or Adam gave it to her wrong, I don't know. You know, I tend to believe that Adam gave it to her saying, well, don't even touch it. If you don't ever touch it, you'll never eat it. And if we do touch it, now he's right. If we touch it, we might die because you might end up eating it. So... I actually do believe it was Adam's fault. I believe it was Adam's fault. I believe Adam told her, told her incorrectly. Uh, now, she did, she did actually take the fruit, so yes, it was her fault too, but, but Adam kind of set her up because when she touched it and didn't die, it's like, uh, it gives her another excuse of maybe God didn't speak to us these ways because she expected to die just by touching it. And because she didn't die when she touched it, that's going like... Wow, have I been have I been lied to? You know, is, will I will I will I die, or is the serpent telling me the truth that great things will happen to me when I eat this fruit? We need to be careful about God's laws and commandments. 
not adding to his rules or subtracting from his rules. And both of those can be big problems. And between statutes and judgments, laws and the interpretation of the laws. And this is where judges work the most. They make the interpretation of the laws. And he's saying, make sure that your judgments match up with the law. And this is something that we've had, you know, in, in America, two of the worst cases that were involved were ones that they made up without any, st any standing whatsoever. The one was that uh, prayer was not allowed in, in schools. Nowhere in any decision had ever dealt with no prayer allowed. And then they just invented a rule. And the most recent one that they just invented was that homosexuality couldn't be blocked. No precedent ever, homosexuality couldn't be blocked, marriage. Now they just decided that there was no, and you know, one of the things that drives me nuts is people will say, well, the Supreme Court made homosexual marriage legal. No, they didn't, they just said they couldn't be stopped. There still was no law, very few laws made in the states that allow for homosexual marriage. They just said you could not make rules against it. But nobody has made laws for it. Well, only about five or six states have made laws for it. So, but they have raised the judgments at a higher level. They don't understand civics. They don't understand how laws are created. You know, and so we've got to be careful. Do we understand? Do we follow what the rules are? And then it says, you shall even warn them that they trespass not against the Lord. So that he's got these cases coming to him and saying, all right, and it would be something like, well, you have an actual case, but you're really treading on God's laws. You know, and this is something that's very important for us. You know, sometimes there's no law against something, but you're not obeying God in doing it. And this is where we get into the whole idea of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And the letter of the law, the, the lawyers will come in trying to find all the little loopholes and how can I get around the letter of the law? And God says, I said no. And you, you've got to think about this. If God said no to every single thing that there was to be no to, we wouldn't be able to carry the Bible. He gives us principles and precepts. But, you know, this is the thing we deal out with out in the prison. They're going, well, the rule didn't say this. Yeah, but the rule said you can't do. Well, it didn't say I specifically couldn't do this. You know, how big do you want the rule book to be, guys? You know, uh, you want the rule to cover every, you know, uh, God said you can only eat these animals. And this was a big section right there. You know, what animals you could and couldn't eat. You know, and then it has, you know, you shall not do this, you shall not do that. And if we put every single thing that you can't do in that section, you know, how big would things get? Would I even want to read it? Yeah, I don't like reading legal books. They're a pain in the neck. They're boring because they cover all the where to is and wherefores and all these other things. And they give you 28 pages of of all the different ways that you might be able to, to violate that law because they want to make sure they cover as much as possible. And there's still loopholes, mostly because they wrote too much. And he's saying, make sure that you warn them about God's ways. Yeah. And you think about this, if our judges, we would have a really big problem with many of the people saying, 
you can't do that. You've got to keep everything separated. You can't bring God into the middle of all of this. But that is exactly what we need. We need God in the middle of righteous decisions, saying this is what God says. This is the way he wants it done. And then it says, you, you warn them that they trespass not against the Lord, and so wrath come upon you and upon your brethren. This do you, and you shall not trespass. Saying if you warn them, you keep honest, honest judgments, God's wrath will not come upon the nation. You know, I look at our nation and going, God's wrath must fall on our nation in the direction we're going. Not only our nation, God's wrath must fall on the world for the direction the world is going in. The world is rejecting God and his ways, and God's wrath will come. It's not even a question of may it come. It's going to come. The only thing holding it back right now is Christians and their prayer and their, their fervent requests. Abraham went to God and God said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And he says, God, would you destroy, you know, would you destroy this for 50 people? No, I'll take care of it. Would you, would you destroy it if there's 25? Would you destroy it if there's 15? Would you destroy it if there's 10? And he stopped at 10. You know, why did Lot stop at 10? Because he was pretty sure that Lot and his family, uh, Abraham was pretty sure that Lot and his family made 10 people. Because you had Lot, his wife, their two unmarried daughters, and then he had daughters that were married, so there's at least two more daughters that have husbands, so that's, that's eight people, and that's minimum. And he was sure that there would be at least 10 righteous people in that city. So he was able to stop and say, God, I'm going to stop here. Even I'm, the wife, huh? Even the wife well, even the wife wanted what the world. So, but Abraham stopped and said, well, I'm going to just stop there. I'm sure there's 10 people. Lot makes eight or more, depending on how many daughters that he had. So he goes, there's at least eight just from Lot. There's got to be at least two people in Sodom and that are, in, in Sodom that are righteous. And most of Lot's family wasn't righteous. And yet they were rescued. At least four of them rescued. Because the wrath of God fell on the evil. There's coming a time where God's going to say, okay, the world is so evil, I'm taking my church out. And wrath will fall on this world. How bad has it got to be? I don't know. It seems pretty bad to me already. How bad is it going to be that we're in the days like Noah where everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes? I don't know. We seem to be awfully close to that. When I talk to people, they're all the same way. I have no problem with this. It's good to me. There's no absolute truth. As long as I'm happy with it, it's okay. What are we seeing on our television shows? Full of unrighteous behavior. And that's just the little bits that I see. I don't even watch most of them because I can't even stand the commercials for them. I don't even like TV, period, anymore. And most of the movies are the same way. They are also full of unrighteous activities. And I look at some, even with the Christian movies that are put out, I'm going, how can you guys be putting this stuff in there and making, trying to make it look acceptable? And it goes against God's word. And these are the supposedly righteous movies that people are watching. You know, and we're going, God, what is going on in this world? How, far, how much further down can we go before God 
brings judgment. I think we're awfully close. I think righteous, righteous these days doesn't necessarily mean righteous. I mean, you know, this person gets to say, that's part of what they're looking at because they've redefined righteousness because there's no absolute yeah, truth. So then, if there's no absolute truth, then there's no righteousness to have to live by. You know, and that is the problem. In their minds. In their minds. And unfortunately, even in many Christians, the face of righteousness has changed because they're not looking in the mirror of God's word. And this is the sad thing. There are play, many Christians, and the, and the saddest thing I've said so many times here, how many Christians have never read the entire Bible? How many of them don't read the Bible each day to begin with, even if it's only one, you know, even if it was only the New Testament? There's so many Christians that don't read the Bible. There's so many Christians that have never read the whole of the Bible. There's so many Christians that have never studied the Bible, and then they say they're Christians. Now, I don't know. It's possible they've repented of their sins and following Jesus, but they've got to be anemic in their spirits with nothing fed to it. And this is in Jehoshaphat saying, you warn them, you do this, and you shall not trespass. The warnings of God keep us from sin. Knowing his word keeps us from sin. Because one thing I know is every time I read the Bible, God shows me more and more of the sin in my life. And then when I try to sin, it's like my, the reminder saying, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be living this way. You're not supposed to be like this. And I don't always listen the way I should, but for the most part, the Holy Spirit is there prompting me saying, don't trespass. Don't commit these sins. And then it says, just as a little footnote here and behold Amariah the chief priest is over you all in the matters of the Lord so anything that's spiritual the chief priest was responsible for he was the one to make decisions about what the word of God says and the, and the Lord and he says Zebediah the son of Ishmael the ruler of the house of Judah for all the king's matters so anything that was a king's rule went before Zebediah at the, at the top, and anything that was a spiritual matter went before the high priest. Now, how they drew the line, I don't know, but that's, you know, that's, where, that's where it was. And then, then he says, Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Deal courageously, and the Lord shall be, be good. And I love this courageously, strong, uh, firm, secure. God asks us to be courageous. You know, if you read the book of Judges, apparently Joshua had a big problem with being courageous because God always told him to be strong and courageous in at least three different places. He told him, be strong and be courageous. And, you know, which tells me that Joshua seemed to have had some problems. And he's the general. He's the one that was the mighty military leader and God is saying, be strong, be courageous. And God is telling us all the time, be strong and be courageous. And we need to really understand, and it's not in the Bible, but it really it is a true statement. If God is on our side, there's nobody that can stand against us. Nothing. Nobody, nothing that can stand against us. If God is on our side, or the other way we put it is, God and me make a majority. Because God is stronger than anybody else, and we can stand. And over and over we see people standing with God even though everybody else seems to be against them.
and I stand for God. We see David standing for God and fighting Goliath. We see Daniel standing for God and ending up in the lion's den. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing with God. When everybody else in the valley had bowed and being cast into the fiery furnace, over and over throughout the scriptures, we see people who stand with God, apparently alone, and God gives them victory. We don't know what God will do with us if we just stand for him. Yeah. Now, the other side of it is we, he might take us home. He might get to be martyred or whatever, but that's still not a bad deal. But are we willing to stand with God and say, God, I am going to stand with you no matter what? And too few people are willing to stand with God no matter what because they're wimpy, cowardly people and do not understand the power of God of being on their side. And God will take the wimpy, cowardly person and make them victorious and strong if they just depend on him. And matter of fact, he likes the wimpy, cowardly person standing with him because he gets the glory. He gets all the glory and we don't get the glory. Because if I'm a strong, courageous person, I might just say, well, look what I accomplished. But if I go in shaking in my boots and saying, God, you're the only thing that's going to make me get through this, then God gets the glory. And he will put us in positions that he will get the glory because he does not want to share his glory. Lord, we ask you to be with us. Help us learn to walk with you and to stand with you and, and to follow you, to not make decisions that are based upon the world's way and to seek you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.